0: Guys, we are back on another Q and A episode today, Q and A number four. And if you would like one of your questions answered and feature on the next episode of this, then you can either ask it in the question box on Spotify, or if you want to message me on Instagram, just go to the Instagram page at dysfunctional patterns. Uh, and you can send me your message there. I'll happily answer it um, in the DMs and then I'll do it in more detail on here so that other people can benefit. So first question that I have here is from Niall and he asks, is there literature on low RPE and strength? I see a lot of embracing, quote, explosive reps. And then uh, the last part of that was cut off, but I think it was something like you know, can't find much research on this. So I think your question, Niall, is probably in relation to my promotion of the idea of trying to make the majority of the work on the main lifts, the main barbell stuff that's heavy, as, you know, fast and smooth and explosive as you can. But I think that that gets mistaken for me saying that they should be at a low rpe so i I should say that for me rpe and reps and reserve aren't the same thing i know some people equate them as the same and they're just inverted scales but i actually don't use them that way i think that it's much more useful to utilize rpe as a very subjective measure of just how challenging you found a seth so if you want to think of it maybe as like the percentage of your maximal exertion um, so if you write something like a 9 out of 10 you feel like you're at about 90 percent of the hardest you can work whereas reps in reserve is a more objective assessment of literally how many more reps could you have done and i think it's important to distinguish between those because an rpe9 or sorry i should say having one rep in the tank left if you are doing work at say 90% of your one rep max is very different than having one rep in the tank left if you're doing work at say 60% of your one rep max. Because if you only got one rep in the tank left at 60%, you're really exhausted because you've done probably 20 reps or so. Um, And that has an entirely different fatigue um, impact as opposed to doing a heavy double and knowing that you could only done one more to hit three. You know, that's pretty standard training for a lot of people who are training for strength. Um, so when I say that the main lifts should be explosive, the RPE should be high. You should be exerting yourself very hard to push that bar super fast. But I do advocate leaving quite a few reps in the tank, not, you know, five or six, but I really don't like to have people regularly doing sessions where they've got less than one or two really good reps in the tank. Um, Those are really not grindy reps, ones where they can do it with very good technique. And it's just been my experience that that works really well. There is, if you want to examine this further, uh, plenty of research on velocity-based training that's pretty favorable now. And velocity-based training is basically getting at the same concept, you know, having minimum uh cutoffs for the speed at which a rep can move before you eventually stop doing any more sets and move on and i basically am doing the exact same thing when i'm training people except i'm just using my coaching eye i'm not setting up a linear transducer and uh or an app or anything like that it's just my coaching eye and i have seen a lot of reps now to be able to see what is good smooth reps that we'll be able to progress on with next time and what is so grindy that we're going to hit a plateau if we keep trying to push that um and that's really all it comes down to is it's not about you know i, I don't care so much about people moving a bar fast just for the sake of it or to be explosive or athletic or whatever because there's lots of other ways of working math it's it's actually about what is going to allow them to get a really good stimulus but actually still be able to progress that the next session and the session after that and that ends up being a waste where you know it looks like they've got two maybe three really good reps in the tank at the end of us I'm not against pushing things to failure occasionally uh, but it definitely should not be the default if you care about getting stronger Next question is what is my training split? So my current training split is training every single day. I got into the habit of doing that back about six months ago when I started training just purely for enjoyment and and took a step away from any kind of structured plan. And I realized that I actually really enjoy training every single day. So I've tried to keep that in there, um, but I don't lift every single day. So I lift five days a week three of those days are upper body because I'm trying to specifically uh, progress more in my upper body at the moment because that's always lacked for me compared to my lower body I've got like a big base of lower body training from when I was a teenager Uh, three days upper body are uh, essentially pushing and pulling on those days the bench and the overhead press alternate on each day so Day one, I'm doing bench press. Day two, I'm doing overhead press. Day three, I'm doing bench press. And then it flips the next week. So I get a nice, even uh, balance of overhead work and bench work. And then I've got, you know, pulling stuff like chins and rows and dumbbell bench and all the kind of assistance stuff you'd put in for upper body. Lower body days, because I'm focusing on trying to increase uh, my running and my my fitness, um, I'm only doing two lower body days. One of those is a squat focused day and one of those is a deadlift focused day, but both days have squats and deadlifts. It's just that on the squat focused day, uh, that's what I'm doing heavy. And then any deadlifts afterwards are, you know, more volume and and less weight probably, you know, it, it tends to alternate between, you know, deadlift variations. Um, and same, like on the on the heavy deadlift day, I'll have um, a front squat afterwards or a zercher squat or something like that. And then I've got running two days a week, Wednesdays and Sundays. I do my runs um, and I've been able to stick with that consistently for the longest time I ever have now. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with that and up to being able to do uh, about six and a half kilometers for my longer run so that's the training split really enjoy it for the time being plan is to uh, shift towards more of a focus on just strength in general particularly lower body once I get up to being able to do uh, if I could hit 10 kilometers and uh, be able to keep that as what I can do for my long running distance I'd be pretty satisfied with that right next question is in regards to muscle ups Um, so the person was saying that uh, they found the whole muscle-up journey inspiring and was just asking for you know main things to focus on. So, I was quite pleased and surprised with how quickly I was able to get my first muscle-up. And I've actually recently managed to get two in a row, which was cool. Now, they're not perfectly strict muscle-ups. There's definitely some swing happening there in the bottom and trying to use some momentum from the lower body. Um, but you know that's something that I'm gonna work on further down the line just getting up over the bar was my main goal initially Um, in terms of what really moved the needle there for me with the muscle up I did a lot of stuff in the beginning that I'm not sure had that much transfer Um, so I did things like uh, bar dips um I don't think that's actually really necessary if you've got decent upper body strength you should be able to press out of the dip no problem. I suppose I did them because I would get shoulder pain in that position and there was a little bit of you know psychological hesitancy about just dropping into that position on the bar if I was to attempt a muscle up. So um I did bar dips but I don't think they're really all that necessary. Um, I did a, like really the big things for me was getting the ability to do chest to bar pull-ups. So in order to do those, I started doing lat pull-downs, um, where I pulled it all the way into my chest, uh, tried to get up to being able to do those pretty heavy. And then I started using a band as well for chest to bar pull-ups. And, you know, I did a lot of body weight, Pulling variations of inverted rows and stuff like that. Again, if you have a decent strength base, I don't think that's all that important. The big ones for me that I noticed really got me to the point where I felt like just naturally I was ready to pull up over that bar was chest-to-bar pull-ups. Just doing sets of uh, singles and doubles, lots of sets of those. Trying to pull as high as I could and as powerfully as I could. And the other uh, game changer was band-assisted muscle-ups. So, basically the same way that you would train for getting your first pull-up. Just starting with a heap of band assistance. Like, so much band assistance that it was actually kind of dangerous. If I was to, you know, lose control of my foot, I could have got slingshotted through the fucking roof. But they work very well because they allow you to learn what the movement should actually feel like for getting up over that bar because you need to kind of pull yourself away from the bar slightly in a bit of an arc Um, and you just build that confidence as you take the bands away. So I got my first muscle up while I was still on the bands. Um, I think I was at the point where I was able to do a few reps with a green and a black band and I was able to do like three chest-to-bar pull-ups in a row and I think you'll know when you're ready for the muscle-up because basically the way I got it was I went in one day and I was I'd prescribed myself chest-to-bar pull-ups did the first couple of sets and I just felt myself going really high on the bar to the point where I just knew that if I made a bit of an effort to turn over on the bar I would land in that muscle-up position, Um, and sure enough, I did. So you should feel a huge amount of uh, strength and power in your lats and your grip, your forearm muscles. And if you do the banded muscle-up and the chest-to-bar pull-up and progress those, uh, you should eventually find yourself at a point where you just feel naturally like you could pull into that position obviously it goes without saying that being a bit on the lighter side makes that an easier proposition um... so i don't know if i would have got the muscle up as easily if i was still weighing over ninety kilos i was 82 when i got it and still 82 now so yeah those would be my advice banded muscle ups chest of bar pull ups and just keep hammering those until you feel like you've got the power to pull over next one is a running ready question which is a, a rare Uh, type of question for me being stuck at five kilometers on my run for a while now not getting any easier tips for progressing so i answered this on my story and some people found my response a bit kind of brutally honest but in a funny way i guess um and it's really just that you you probably need to try a little bit harder to just push past that point of discomfort as you're coming towards the end of the run something i was saying in my response in that story is that running and lifting while they draw a lot of similarities one big difference with them is obviously the intensity that your muscles are being exposed to when we're doing strength training we're typically working with weights that are anywhere between challenging for one rep up to you know, no more than 20, which means that at any given point in a set, we're probably no more than five or 10 reps away from uh, not being able to lift the weight. So, you know, you would be forgiven for thinking that, you know, a run starting to get hard means that you need to stop it at that point. But running is such a lower intensity activity than lifting i mean you think about it you're doing thousands of reps if you count every stride or or step as a rep so any activity you can do for thousands of reps is obviously an endurance activity and so you just you you'll find that you just need to push to endure that little bit longer and i would be almost certain that you can you know you can almost certainly go at least another 50 meters on the running route that you're already doing if you're getting up to 5k. Um, and I've just found with running that it's strange in that, you know, I can be doing a six kilometer run and two kilometers into it, I'm feeling bad. You know, my legs are feeling heavy. I, I just feel tired and, and sluggish, but... It's not like I'm close to failing the way that you could fail a rep on bench press and just have the thing come down on you. You know, I know that I can keep going and that's how I've managed to keep on building my my running mileage is just trying to push past that point a little bit further. And obviously as you get fitter, you know, the point at which you feel that, oh, this is kind of starting to suck part of a run, that, that happens later and later um but i think a lot of people get tricked into thinking that you know as they get fitter they should just be able to keep on tacking extra mileage onto their runs no problem but it is really hard and i'm by no means an expert but i'm probably i can relate very strongly to people who are doing that kind of 5k run territory because i've i've been there and i am doing it still and you know, I think you just got to give it a go, uh, to push harder. Obviously there could be things you might need to fine tune in your, in your programming. So certainly if you're running, running once a week, you'll probably get more progress. If you just go to two times a week, um, there's other things you can look at with making sure your nutrition is good, making sure you're obviously doing some strength training, but, um, Unless you've you've legitimately experienced like just not being able to run that extra bit longer on the end of your runs, um, I'm confident that you can you can go further and push that up to five and a half six kilometers and and beyond. Next question is: Is barbell shoulder press suboptimal for hypertrophy? Um, and then this person was saying they'd heard that the lower back uh, limits the loads that you can handle. So, this is a very common shtick in the online fitness space, particularly with the guys I call the optimal bros who are rampant on spaces like TikTok and Instagram. Although, TikTok in particular has a lot of 17 year olds, 17 year old biomechanic experts, uh, which is interesting. But yeah, so the, the basic, the narrative here is that. Barbell overhead press uses your lower back and you're not going to be able to maximally tax your shoulders because when the weight gets heavy, your lower back is going to be the thing that fails. Um, This doesn't make sense on a couple of fronts to me. Uh, The first one is that your lower back is by no means or should not be the limiting factor on an overhead press. Like I've never missed an overhead press because my lower back wasn't able to handle the weight. like the most I've ever overhead pressed is 75 kilos and that's a fraction of what my back has been asked to handle on squats and deadlifts so I think that the people who are saying that you miss your overhead presses from a weak lower back and so that's why you shouldn't do it just are saying a lot about their their back strength you know that shouldn't be happening yes it is taxing on the lower back but anytime you miss an overhead press should be because of your shoulder strength absolutely now the argument that i I can see against the overhead press is that it's less stable than say a seated press or a seated high incline press or a machine press of some sort um, so I see that argument that you know you can take your shoulders closer to failure if you're if the shoulders are failing on the overhead press because you know they can't get themselves leveraged into a good position because basically an overhead press is highly technical, so you can miss the rep sometimes because you've just put the bar in a bad position. It'll still fail due to your shoulders not being able to lift it, but your shoulders probably would have been able for an extra rep or two had you got it into a good position. And that is easier to do if the bar is locked in a certain path, like say on a Smith machine, or um, you know if you've got a load of stability in a seated position. Um, but the answer here is just to do both, because I do believe that the overhead press is the superior Um, choice for developing strength it is fantastic for developing mass as well you just look at some of the strongest pressers in the world who are strong men and they've got gargantuan shoulders Um, although this doesn't need to be an either or decision so i would do both i do barbell overhead press I also do dumbbells in a seated position sometimes I'll program in seated high incline or seated barbell shoulder press uh, lateral raises front raises machines all of that can be used as assistance work to bring up um, any potential gaps that could be left there um, by the overhead press but it's really just a matter of That stuff allows you to get in more work on the shoulders when you've kind of hit your limit of what you can do on that overhead press. And I suppose I'll take this as an opportunity as well just to address the other elephant in the room of what these uh, optimal coaches or biomechanic gurus tend to say is a big reason why you shouldn't be overhead pressing which is supposedly that it's bad for your back because you've got to get into an arched position and there's a lot of load on your back again you know if you're getting back pain from handling you know 40 50 60 even 70 kilos in your hands on an overhead press you're probably not squatting and deadlifting very much um and you're also probably handling more weight Uh, than you should be on your overhead press. So I I don't think blaming the exercise is a very logical thing to do here. When people get back pain from exercises, nine times out of ten, they've loaded it well beyond what their back is capable of. And anybody could have looked at them attempting it and known that it was only going to go one way. Like I was in the gym yesterday. I saw a young guy squatting. Um, or I saw him loading up the bar anyway and it looked a lot heavier than you know compared to the size of his legs and his back and everything and I thought this isn't gonna go well and sure enough as he unracked the bar I could see him shaking and wobbling Uh, I thought yeah this really isn't gonna go well and he descended about maybe one-third of the way down before His whole body just gave out and he collapsed down. Thankfully, he had safety pins set up. But if he would have got hurt there, you know, he goes around and tells his friends, squats are dangerous for you. The parents are, you know, worried for their son and the squats get blamed. And uh, it's clearly just too much weight on the bar. It's nothing to do with the exercise. It's just barbell exercises lend themselves to people being able to easily slide on few extra plates that actually amount to probably fifty kilos more than they're able to do next was a question from a very nice guy from Brazil he was asking why do I wear the belt on overhead press so from talking to this guy whose name I've forgotten apologies uh, in the DM's he wasn't actually really sure what the benefits of the belt is so the reason we wear a belt is not because it you know lifts the weight for us or creates some kind of artificial strength what a belt really does is it allows you to brace against something Um, the same way that it's easier to get your elbows up into a good position when you're doing a front squat if you've got 40 kilos on the bar than an empty bar you've got some resistance to pull your body around and when you're wearing a belt you have the belt to push your your abdominal muscles against and that also gives you feedback about how tight you're getting so essentially a belt allows you to get tighter which makes you more stable and when you're more stable you're able to lift more weight when you're able to lift more weight you're able to get stronger and build more muscle so it's my opinion that wearing the belt indirectly allows you to get stronger and build more muscle of course i don't recommend wearing the belt all the time Uh, Much like my opinion on straps, I only put the belt on when I feel like I need it, when I feel like I'm actually going to start being limited with the amount that I can lift or how well I can lift it if I don't get that belt on. So typically, I only really get the belt on for my top set um, or maybe the set before us, depending on um, how heavy I'm going. Next question, looks like your body weight came down after the 200 kilo squat. Has it impacted, uh, I think bench press as well was the end of that question. Some of these questions get cut cut off by Instagram uh, when you go back in the archives. Um, Yeah, my bench press did suffer. Now, uh, it's very difficult for me to say how much of that was purely body weight loss related the reason why is because I also substantially changed my training while I was losing body weight and the reason for that was I just kind of had gotten sick of the rigidity of following a structured training plan and I just wanted a mental break, I wanted to enjoy training again and it's especially hard to enjoy training when you're progressively getting worse at the lifts that you've spent years building up your strength on um which happens when you're losing body weight so i shifted my goals towards more calisthenics uh focused stuff for my upper body like working on my muscle up and improving my pull-ups and my dips so i really wasn't bench pressing a lot at all um while i was dropping the body weight so this meant that by the time i was down at 80 i think i got down as low as 80 or 81 kilos maybe 81 um my bench was really bad i'd say that i would have struggled to bench 80 kilos for one rep um i do think a lot of that was more to do with the fact that i just hadn't been benching or bench pressing heavy when i did do it uh very much at all because i'm only one kilo heavier now i'm at 82 and a bit let's say 82 and a half and i have recently benched 100 for one and it felt really good um the other day there i did 90 for six i think and i reckon i would pretty soon be able to do about 110 for a single on the bench no problem i actually think I could probably beat my record of 122 with maybe another kilo or two of weight gain Um, and being a lot leaner so I think overall the weight loss will be a positive thing for my relative strength Um, but I can't say exactly how much it affected my bench press just because the training changed so much. I would say in general you should expect to lose a significant amount off your bench press if you're dropping that much weight. Next question then any tips for dealing with golfer's elbow? So golfer's elbow or any kind of um overuse in- injury like the principles of how to deal with it are pretty much the same you want to kind of reverse engineer how you got into this place which was probably from doing too much that's how you know chronic inflammation based uh, tendinopathies happen it's typically not an acute thing that happens it's like we start getting a little bit of an ache Telling us that we're doing too much and we just keep going and then it turns into a a full-blown tendinopathy uh, Which is what golfer's elbow falls under So obviously the smartest thing to do is going to make sure that we stop doing stuff that's agitating us In general, I would say the golden rule is that you should not be feeling worse as you're doing an exercise There's a bit of irritation at the start, but it goes away as it gets warmer that's okay. However, if that is not working after a while, you may need to avoid any irritation at all. Um, And what can also help a lot is doing things like isometric holds, um, specifically in the position where you feel the pain and trying to get that to to loosen then or decrease over time. So, you know, if you get pain when you're doing a, a tricep extension, take a nice light weight pull it down to the point where you know you just feel like it's just in the borderline where you're going to get that pain triggered or I guess you know the the flicking sensation of the tendon or whatever it is and you just hold that there and try to do an isometric where you're contracting but the joint is staying at the same angle and that can be really helpful as well. I know some people have, have had some success with doing eccentrics as well for their tendinopathy but I think the bottom line is really You need to find the sweet spot. With any overuse injury, it's trying to find that spot that's somewhere between full rest and doing stupid shit. And that midpoint is where you're not agitating it, but you are stimulating the recovery by getting blood flow there, by challenging it slightly with some loading, uh, but within the capacity of what it can handle. Next question, why is my back buzzing every time I RDL common mistakes? Well, again, I sound like a broken record here, but the common mistake is too much waste. Uh, I got this guy to send me a video of his RDL. Uh, really his RDL technique wasn't too bad at all. Um, he did have a tendency to reach the bar very far away from him, um, but not in the way that it was hanging from his body. He was actually using energy as, energy from his shoulders to reach that forward. Uh, so, you know, the, the only technical adjustment I said there was just to keep it in a bit closer to your body, particularly if you're getting back pain, it might take some of the load off your back to keep that in closer to your center of mass. Um, but you know, typically when people ask me about this, the answer is very obvious because the series of questions I ask is, does it hurt when you're doing the empty bar? And usually the answer to that is, well, no, it's like, okay, so Does it hurt at 40 kilos? No. Does it hurt at 50 kilos? No. And eventually we arrive at a number where it's like, oh yeah, that's where it starts to hurt. And it sounds so stupidly simple, but it's like, if your back hurts every time you do the RDL at 70 kilos, why don't we try 60 kilos and just do that for a while and then try to increase the weight a little bit. Um... That honestly works so much of the time, it's crazy. If that doesn't work, that's the point at which you would start looking at just dropping out the RDLs for a while and doing something else and seeing if the issue is actually the movement that you're doing. Um, And then failing that, that's really the point at which I would look at maybe just trying to give that entire muscle group a break for a few days. And then failing that, that's where you would go to uh, somebody more specialized like a physio but that would be uh, my recommendation i've had lots of people ask questions like this and come back a few months later and be like thanks you know that actually helped just reducing the weight it's not not really any surprise that people whose entire identity and i'm one of them is based around how much we can lift well i'd like to think not my entire identity but a big chunk of it is attached to me being a gym person who lifts things and when an injury comes along and it requires us having to take a step back and pull weights back to, you know, numbers that were challenging for us years ago that we'd like to think that we're way past now. Uh, It's a hit to the ego and it's tough but, you know, your choice is to be in pain or to try to get this thing fixed by temporarily reducing the weight. And there's still ways you can make it plenty t- uh, plenty challenging by, um, you know, just doing high rep sets but at lighter weight uh, Next question. Thoughts on submax slow eccentrics or is it all Supermax now? Um, like what? This is just nonsense to me. I understand what this stuff is. You know, I, I know what a submax slow eccentric means but god is it just i feel like this is the wankery of s and c uh where we really try to over complicate stuff and i know there's people who use these things successfully but i think anybody who has listened to the podcasts for a while now will know that i'm all about simplicity and to me just controlling your eccentric or negative or lowering down part of the exercise whatever you want to call it uh, just doing that gets us all the benefits that we need from eccentrics if you want to you know mess around here and there and do some slow eccentric work on bicep curls to feel the muscle a little bit more or whatever have at it I do that as well Um, certainly sometimes when I'm hearth and doing an exercise I'll go really slow Uh, Just to make sure that I'm not causing any irritation there. But look, this just isn't something I use. I think tempo and prescribing tempo is completely unnecessary overcomplication of strength training. Um, And I find that when I start getting people to focus on the tempo, um, they kind of shoot themselves in the foot because they just start overthinking things. Um, typically what I tell people to do is lower the weight as fast as they can while still being able to control it extremely well which ends up looking like somewhere between a one to two second eccentric, and then when you're pushing up push it up as forcefully and powerfully as you can while still being in control Um, so this isn't something that I'm you know utilizing or reading a lot about because i just don't see the application to this and um certainly not for the people that i work with who are just normal people who need to be getting better at push-ups and pushing the sled and picking stuff off the floor and pull-ups and all that sort of stuff okay and last one advice for an snc coach thinking of moving to personal training um I suppose that I will give you the coaching slash training side of my advice and then the more professional business side of my advice. So in terms of the coaching and training, I would just say that I think it's a great move. I think it's, for me anyway, far more rewarding than working with athletes. Um, The impact that you can make on a regular person's life who... You know, taking somebody who comes in on day one, can't do a push up, and six months later, you have them doing it with 20 kilos on their back. And they've gone from barely been able to do body weight squats to 80 kilos on their back. Like, yeah, that's not stuff that's going to blow anybody's mind in the All Blacks strength and conditioning facility but at least I can say definitively that I have a purpose that is very measurable and objective and the people that I'm working with really appreciate me. Um, Strength and conditioning, unfortunately, it's very difficult to objectively quantify what the value of a strength and conditioning coach is, how one is better than the other How things transfer over to the field. Um, And you just spend a lot of your career trying to convince people why you should be there. And you just don't have any leverage. Whereas when you're working with regular people who really need you to help them stay accountable and show them what to be doing in the gym, uh, you have a huge impact and you develop some amazing relationships with people and you have a really profound impact. Um, on their lives. So I know that's not going to be the same for everybody, but for me, uh, personal training or just working with the general population, uh, as they get called, is um, is by far the more rewarding profession. Uh, then on the professional side of things, um, well, sorry, my my advice there would be just to embrace that and really, you know, get pumped about the idea of getting married from you know doing push-ups to the rack to getting our first push-up to the floor um and then on the professional side of things this is really where the the ship sinks for most people who get into personal training is that they just don't spend enough time on the business side of things and really making a concerted effort to try to grow the business drive new leads um my recommendations here having made this mistake before in the past is not to put a lot of stock into social media if you already have a track record of obtaining clients and business through social media sure you clearly know what you're doing there and by all means uh keep on going back to that well if you are someone who has been doing the social media thing for a while or is thinking of starting it for your PT business and you've no idea what you're doing or you've been doing it for a while and you've never actually generated any significant clients from there, uh, I would say just think of it as a business card. Don't put any unnecessary amount of time or energy into it. And so just have that there as a business card, sort of that people can look you up if they're thinking of working with you and put the vast majority of your energy into taking advantage of the social circle that you should already have from having coached people through strength and conditioning and even your your family and friends group and people that you went to school with etc those are where you should be looking for clients not strangers online who are looking for somebody who's going to blow their mind with some really highly edited reel Or they're looking for someone who's going to have a crazy physique to kind of get them hooked in. uh, You'll have a much easier time with getting recommendations. Getting people in the door who know you. Who, you know, you might have to train them for free at first or at a discounted race. um, But their word of mouth is going to be worth way more as an advertisement to um, the next bunch of people you try to get in as clients than you know, them just seeing your Instagram ad pop up. So that would be my recommendation, you know, embrace the fact that you're going to be training regular people and that they're not going to be doing crazy stuff that you might have seen in um, rugby players or American football players or whoever you've been training. Um, But you're going to have a much bigger impact and you actually are going to get the odd person who is genetically very well gifted for training and puts in a lot of effort and they get up to lifting some pretty cool numbers um, and then on the business side of things just put the majority of your effort into networking in real life having real life conversations with people and just constantly pushing to keep regularly having those conversations and get people in the door so um gonna leave it there now for today uh got through a lot of questions there Uh, I would ask you guys, if you enjoy the podcast, go ahead, give it a five-star review on Spotify. That's going to help it grow. It'll give me more of an incentive to keep actually making these. Um, I don't make any money from these, but it's good to be able to share information with people. Um, And I'll continue to do so as long as there is a demand for it. And if you like this episode or any previous one, feel free to share it with a friend as well. Uh, as I said at the start of the podcast, if you have any questions yourself that you would like answered, you can pop it in the questions box on Spotify uh, or you can DM me on Instagram at dysfunctional patterns. And in general, if you had any thoughts on this episode you want to share, pop it into that box. Okay, until next time.